All right, well, welcome. I think this is the first time I've ever actually taught in this building, so that's exciting. Um, as Drew said, my name's Max. I work at the church doing whatever someone tells me to do, so that's my general uh, position there. Uh, as Drew was saying, we will be in Philippians 3. We'll be doing the second half. Morgan did the first half for us last week. Uh, so we're starting in 12, and then we'll be going through 4.1. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. Um, if you don't, it's on your printout, or if you have your phone, you also obviously have a Bible. Um, so you can do that. Um, before we kind of get started on this stuff, we're because we're following up uh, without much of a break in the actual text, uh, we're really kind of going off of what Morgan taught last week. Like, this is a lot of building from what we heard. It's not really a clear cut. We heard this thought last week, and now we have this brand new idea coming at us this week. So, before I get started on my stuff, does anyone remember anything from last week? I'm expecting a lot of participation, so I'm going to need more than blank stares. Was anyone here last week? Let's start there. Raise your hand if you were here. Don't pretend like you weren't here. Raise your hand. So none of you were here? Okay. No one was here. That's great. You liars. Philippians 3, the first part of the chapter was about lying. Really? No one was here except for the, the few people? Oh, oh, you're just that afraid to raise your hand? That's going to get real awkward later because I'm going to make you talk to me. And I'm very comfortable making other people uncomfortable. So, ask Alec or Jared or Aaliyah or Drew. Drew especially. He's very comfortable with what my family does to make others uncomfortable. So, I sense that what we talked about, was, even though I wasn't here, I sense that what we talked about was... Paul warning against people who, who were kind of setting up these extra uh, rules and criteria for their own spirituality and him kind of doubling down on him actually being able to beat them all in their own game. That's just a hunch. Just a hunch? It's a good hunch. Yes. So, uh, the Alexia, did you have something you want to say? Rejoicing in Christ, that's going to be a big theme that we're going to see throughout this chapter, this idea of Christ being worth it. It's a big theme through the whole book of Philippians. I'm actually going to reach all the way back to Rachel's lesson in chapter 1 for a little bit of our conclusion, um, kind of following up those that theme as well. Um, yes, so that, that, that rejoicing in Christ and Christ being worth it is kind of a big theme that we're going to see, that we have seen and we will continue to see in this book. Um, more so, we also, this is where we get our, uh, we get a famous idea from Paul uh, where he says, I, I'm greater than, like, a, I'm, I'm a Jew of Jews is this idea that he kind of brings out, this idea that he, for all these people, who, as Drew was talking about, this self-righteousness that they think that they can have because they're, they're Jewish they, he basically describes that he is Jewish to like the next level, the extreme level of Jewish. I'm, I'm born to the right tribe. I was circumcised on the right day. He really taught uh, in this school by these amazing teachers. It's really all of the 
humble brags of Judaism that you can really pack into a first century humble brag about Judaism. It's really what it is. So, we see him kind of building that idea all to say that if I have all of these things but I don't have Christ, it's all for nothing. This is kind of a, this is again a theme that we see throughout this whole book is this, I can talk about how great all this is, but really if I don't have Christ, it's meaningless. Um, I believe we, we see the word, uh, what word does the CSB choose for this? Uh, the famous one is rubbish. I think, yeah, so the CSB refers to it as, uh, if I do all this but I don't have Christ, then it's dung, is kind of the word that it uses. Um, that's actually a really, really strong word that Paul chooses to use there in the Greek. It is, I don't know how much Morgan decided to hit on that. I actually missed her lesson as well, so going just off of her notes, I don't know how much she decided to hit on that one. But it's a very, very strong word. It, it is essentially the Greek equivalent of cussing at them to say that this is completely meaningless. It is as worthless as possible without Jesus. Uh, that's kind of the big idea. All right, so now we're actually going to get started in our actual text for today. So we're going to do verses 12 and 14 first, but before we actually get into that, I'm going to give you a question, and they're on your printouts if you look at the second page, I believe. We're going to go through these four questions kind of as we're leading into each of these different sections of text that I want to cover. So I want you to actually talk about these with the people around you, and then you're going to have to talk to me. So I'm, my goal is to make you as uncomfortable as possible. So you're, I want you to actually talk to the people around you, kind of get into a small little group, and then I'll give you a few minutes to talk about this idea, and then we're going to come back together, and I want to hear from you just a little bit. So this first question, where and why are Christians complacent in their pursuit? All right. I heard at least one good conversation. I couldn't hear most of you, so I can't speak to how good the rest of them were. But I would love to hear from you now. So, what did you talk about? I only know some of your names, so there's a very real possibility that I will only be able to call on about 50% of you. Which makes some of you feel really good and should make some of you terrified. That's all great. I appreciate you sharing. What else? And if someone just says what she said, it will not go well. What do you got? Uh, 
That's going to be a big point that we're going to kind of get to a little later on. You might have already looked at some of the other questions, but the idea of pursuing godly relationships and really the importance of that, that's going to be a, a big theme later on in tonight. That's great. What else? Alexia, what did you talk about? Okay, so let me kind of rephrase that and see if we're on the same page. What I think you're saying is this idea of you kind of surround yourself with people who kind of think like you and have the same ideas as well as probably the same struggles because they're probably around your same age group, probably grew up similar ways and those kinds of things. So you don't have the challenge of someone who would have a different perspective to come in in order to maybe they've got an older way of looking at things or something like that to challenge some of your ideas almost. Like, yeah, yeah. That is 100% very accurate. Hey, Jared, what do you talk about? Mm. That's beautiful. You should put that on a pillow. <laughs> okay. This will be somewhat telling, but and probably a couple of you might feel alienated by it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, raise your hand if you grew up in the Midwest, as he said, or this general area, the Great Plains to whatever. The yes, the Bible Belt. Thank you. That's, that's what I'm going for. So everyone but you two. Wonderful. How many... Sorry, you didn't raise your hand. You're, you go with her. I know. Okay. Got it. Um, or I guess it's the other way more so. Uh, okay, uh, how many of you grew up in church? Almost everyone, I think. Except for Randy, of course. All right, great. So, I, I, I mean, I kind of want to do a little bit of like free-floating here with this. So how do you think that factors into kind of, like as Jared was kind of talking about, do you, do you think the people that you're around, the people who probably grew up like you and think like you, do you think we are more tempted, because I'm in your category too, even though we do have two categories, and I want to hear from the few people who didn't raise their hand on the church thing, how do you feel about the general state of the complacency for holiness that it seems like particularly the Bible Belt Christians seem to struggle with? Okay, so it seems like this issue, in my mind at least, 
This issue seems like it's more common among the Bible Belt Christian um, than it is among play, people from dif a different story. People who didn't grow up in the church usually have with them a, an element of like a radical transformation that usually they're like they're striving for holiness in a lot of ways. Not all of them. I can't lump everybody, obviously. But a lot of them seem to take this more seriously, I think. Because they had that radical transformation shift, there's usually a seriousness that goes with this pursuit that sometimes whenever you don't have that shift, and obviously you could have that shift and grow up in church. I know plenty of those stories too. But uh, there's a lot of people who... They, the complacency is easier because this is just what they've done their whole life. Um, I think specifically about my brother is a missionary in Poland, and a lot of the people there, they don't, grow, they don't grow up in churches, and they grow up doing whatever's just culturally okay, and there's a lot of things that are culturally okay that would not be considered pursuing holiness, that a lot of those people feel very convicted about those things and completely reject them whenever they decide to become a Christian, but here, we don't usually have this complete rejection. We're more of usually trying to toe the line of getting as close as we can to culture without fully sinning is usually more of the, I'm going to say, the Bible Belt way of doing things in my mind. So, I had a question in there at some point. Um, sure, go for it. What do you got? I want to hear from people. How much more tempting, I'm just going to talk at you because you'll hold my eyes. How, mu how much more tempting is it that you compare yourself to someone who doesn't know Jesus at all and then you feel even better about yourself without any justification in that? Have you ever been tempted to do that? Or is it just me? No one else, no one else is worried about that ever? We've got two in the back? Wonderful. Two of you are honest. Three of you are honest. That's nice. Yeah. The struggle is like our culture 
Yeah, maybe that's that's great. That's very very good. Sorry, I'm going back just a little bit to what I actually said to Alec. So I use the phrase comparing yourself to maybe the person who doesn't know Jesus. But how many of you have ever been like uh how many of you have ever been tempted to compare yourself to someone who claims to know Jesus, but you can really tell by their actions that it's like, yeah, I don't know how much you actually believe that. Or how much you actually follow that. That's the person that, I'll tell you, for me in high school, it was really easy for me to look at that person and say, yeah, I know I'm doing better than that guy. Nope. Anybody? There we go. Finally got something that resonated. Wonderful. Yeah. And what we're going to see today in this text is, we all know, like, we know enough here to be able to say, like, obviously that's not good. But our point for this first section that we're going to cover is just knowing that's not good isn't enough. Just not thinking that isn't enough. But to actually pursue even more is what we are called to do. So now I want to actually look at our text. So we're actually going to dive in a little bit. So Philippians 3, I would like someone else to read it for me. Verses just 12 and 14. It's three verses. Someone who I don't know your name, I really want you. Um, yes, please. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also taken hold. I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Thank you very much. So, like I believe Jared said, this, this sanctification is an ongoing process. A few weeks ago, my dad spoke, my dad's Jim in case you didn't know, he, he spoke uh, and in his lesson he talked a little bit about this idea of we have sanctification, salvation, and glorification. These are your big... Christianese words. Um, anyone remember that at all? Or is that too far back? Got a couple nods? Okay. I'm going to do just a quick rebuff on that just a little bit. So we have these three ideas. Your salvation is what essentially you receive whenever you accept Christ. Your salvation is something that it's, it's, not this on, it's not, like Jared said, it's not the same as this ongoing process. You accept Jesus into your life, and there are now ramifications for that for the rest of your life that kind of play themselves out in these other two ideas of your sanctification and your glorification. We're going to get to a little bit on our glorification at the tail end of tonight, um, but right now we're kind of focusing more on this sanctification idea, this idea of becoming more sanctified. That's all it means. 
um, or in other words, essentially becoming more holy. That's where it ties into the question. So I didn't randomly come up with questions. Man, you guys give me nothing on the faces. It's great. You smiled. That's nice. So, <laughs> uh, so we're talking about this idea of your sanctification, which is this ongoing process. It's something that you, it, I, I believe the way Jared decided to phrase it was uh, it's a journey and there's no real destination, which for someone like me, I'm a very goal-oriented person where I really want to see like steps and goals that I can accomplish. I really like the immediate gratification of things. That's why I did construction for a long time, because I really liked starting with nothing, and then when I walked away, there was a table, and that made me feel really good. Sanctification just honestly doesn't work like that. Usually you only see where you've gotten by taking 10 steps forward and looking five steps back and realizing that you made those five steps forward. Usually that's a lot of how it works. It's usually not a lot of, at least for me, it could be different for others, um, it's usually not a lot of seeing it in the now. It, it just usually does not work out that way. Um, it could be different for you, but just I can only speak for myself because I've only lived as myself. I haven't lived as you. So it's a lot of this, we, uh, you're pursuing this holiness essentially for the rest of your life. And from what we see in this text, it, you should be striving after it more than anything else. You should be striving after it continuously. This is more than just something where you can become complacent. Essentially what Paul is teaching is if you become complacent, there's an element to which that is sinful, and therefore that is not holiness. Who knows the definition of holiness? Who knows the definition of holy? What? Did someone say? To be set apart. To set something apart as different. So we have all these texts in the Old Testament, the Levitical laws, where their whole point was to point the Israelite community towards holiness, to look different from the world around them. That's why they weren't allowed to eat certain foods. It's why they weren't allowed to do things like have tattoos. They weren't allowed to do all of these things. And yes, I was hoping that maybe someone would grin at the fact that I made that comment, but at least no one seems to care. Um, to look different from these communities around them that use these things as their forms of pagan worship. That They would look different than the culture around them. Again, I kind of want to hit on, we like to ride up to that line of culture and say, well, I'm not sinning yet, but the pursuit of holiness should be to always look like God and not to look like our culture. To look more and more like God, to be set apart from the world around us in so much as the world around us does not look like God. That is the goal. So, my second point... <laughs> on this text, um, Paul makes it very clear here that he hasn't done enough. If that doesn't make you feel inadequate, I want to know what your life is like. Because that makes me feel inadequate. Because I don't know what you know about Paul, but as we learned from la last week from Morgan, and what we kind of reiterated at the beginning, Paul was about just about as good at this type of living as was physically possible. He was the Jew of Jews. He knew the text. Jesus revealed himself in a vision to him directly. And from that moment on, Paul devoted the entire rest of his life to fulfilling the mission of the gospel 
And at this point in his mission, he makes this comment, it isn't enough. I can't stop striving for more. He isn't enough because he's still not Christ. Christ is the only one who is enough. No matter how far you've come, there's more that can be done. And sometimes that's discouraging. For me, that can be discouraging anyway. Whenever you think, I've come so far, but it's still not enough because I'm still not Christ. And honestly, on this side of eternity, I will never be enough. And we're going to get into that a little bit at the end as well. And that gets into our glorification. So, my final point from this section, just a little bit, is this idea of... uh, Though you have already been saved, if you have accepted Christ into your life, to pursue holiness is still your call. That to continue to strive for more is what we are called to do. If it was what Paul was called to do, then I promise it's what we're called to do. So, um, I want to turn now actually to Hebrews 12. We're going to talk a little bit about this, uh, this discipline idea um, that I, I want to kind of hit on. Uh, if you were in church on Sunday, at, or sorry, if you were at Sunnybrook on Sunday, because I don't know what churches you guys go to, you could go to different churches, and that's great. But if you were at Sunnybrook on Sunday, uh, we uh, were in this text for a good portion of the sermon. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this part for you. So what we are reading, if you want to turn, is Hebrews 12, 7 through 13. And it says, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but He does it for our benefit, so that we can share His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness or holiness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. So this idea of to receive discipline for the sake of righteousness is a good thing. This, uh, the reason I thought of this as I was going through this text was in our staff meeting Two weeks ago now, whenever we were uh, get preparing for uh, the sermon from Sunday at Sunnybrook, we, we came to the idea of uh, talking about experiences in which you were disciplined, or we were disciplined growing up, kind of. And what really stuck out to me and, and really uh, resonated here was probably the most frustrating discipline I ever received growing up from my parents were not the areas where I had done something wrong and my parents were disciplining me. I I have enough of a logical brain to be able to go, yeah, I kind of saw that one coming. But 
a lot of my discipline growing up, at least later in my high school teenage years with my, from my parents, consisted of them disciplining me essentially to make me more righteous. Not because I had done something wrong, but because I could have been better. And I don't know how, much, how many of you may have experienced that, but it was so frustrating for me. I remember thinking, I gave myself all of the excuses. Well, I could have been doing this, or I could have been doing this. All I did was have the wrong attitude about how I should have felt whenever I was talking to someone else. Why is that the thing that you decide to give me a two-hour lecture on? I could have been... Well, my favorite example is, I could have been my brothers. But, for a couple of you, that was funny. Um, but the discipline that they gave me, it hurt more because I felt like I wasn't that bad. But from what we see in our text, like that's the discipline we need. That's the discipline that will grow you from an immature believer to a mature believer. That's the discipline that keeps pushing you in the direction of righteousness. We're going to have a couple other points when we move through our text just a little bit further where we see the need for surrounding yourselves with older, more mature believers and the importance of that in regards to this especially, I believe, this idea that these are people who can speak into you in areas where you might not be wrong. If you think you only need correction whenever you're doing something wrong and not just to be better than you were yesterday. I, I've got a very... Uh, it's going to be a frustrating road. That's all I can tell you. Um, that's going to be a lot. All right. So, based on that, now we're going to move forward just a little bit more in our text. I would ask uh, that someone else actually read uh, for me verses 15 and 16. Alec. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Thank you. All right. Based on the first word in that text, the few of you that have done any teaching, what phrase do you think I'm going to use? Drew? Yep, that first word. What is the therefore, therefore? I went to Bible college. Yes. So, we look back. This one's really straightforward. Sometimes these are a little more, more uh, drawn out things, but I, I felt like it was worth giving you that nugget of hermeneutical wisdom. So, what is the therefore, therefore? We're looking at why, what thought are we continuing, and what thought are we usually coming to some sort of a, uh, a conclusion on. So, it says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. So, Essentially, it is, say, it is telling us, I'm going to just tell you somewhat plainly, that if you're mature, you'll do everything that I just spent the last 20 minutes trying to flush out for you a little bit, and we've been flushing out together. You will pursue holiness if you are mature, is essentially what Paul says. Those are his words. 
If you want to disagree with me or Paul, we can have that conversation later. Um, but essentially that's what he's saying, is if, if you are mature, this is what it looks like. Uh, Paul does this a lot, actually, throughout Philippians. He does a lot of, here's this idea, and then here's what it looks like. And he gives real practical examples of how this looks and how it works. So if you've ever wondered, what does a mature believer look like? What does a mature believer do? A lot of people kind of ask that question. How can I be more mature? It's you do this. You pursue holiness from wherever you're at. And then we also have this idea coming at us in uh, verse 16. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. This is an interesting idea. This is one that... Uh, some people will use this uh, text as an example for uh, people who have not heard the gospel, therefore are not convicted by it. Um, and they will use this idea that if we're only responsible for what has been revealed to us, if nothing's been revealed to us, then I, I'm not responsible for anything. Um, there are even people who go so far as to say it is, uh, it is unloving to share the gospel with people because if I don't reveal this truth to them, they don't have to live by it. I'll tell you right now, I don't think that's true. I don't really have time to flush that out entirely, but I want to kind of talk to you about what I think this really does mean is that to whatever degree in which you can understand what has been taught to you, then you have a responsibility to respond in that way. In so much as it has been revealed, you are responsible to respond to it. So everyone in this room now no longer has an excuse to not pursue holiness. Let me make it that clear. You don't have an excuse because it's been explained to you. I don't know if I did the best job ever, but it's been explained. So therefore, you now have a responsibility to do that. And some, some of this flushes out to as simple as some people are better at understanding things than others. Some people can kind of get these ideas and they can pursue these ideas a little bit more and some people just can't. God gives us different abilities. God gives us different brains. God makes us different. God makes us unique. And... It is your responsibility to the degree to which you can understand to devote your life to, uh, to understanding. I hope that made sense in your ears more than it did coming out of my mouth. Alright, we're going to jump to verse 17 because I want to skip what I actually had. So... Uh, would someone please read for me just verse 17? It's one verse. Jared. All right. This, honestly, simplest text we're dealing with tonight. It is... Actually, before I talk, I want you guys to talk to each other again because I have another question for you. That's on your sheet. So I want you guys to talk about this idea. Why is it important to have living examples for what it looks like to follow Jesus? I want you to talk to each other about that. And I did intentionally use the word living examples. So, 
hopefully that gives you some direction with which to talk. All right, I'm going to give you three minutes and go. It wind it down. All right. What'd you talk about? That's all great. Anyone have anything to add on that? In the back. Anybody else? There's a lot of good stuff there shared, so I'm almost willing to let some of you off the hook on you might have said what has already been said. All right. So, yes, this idea of having a living example is important. It's honestly as simple as we do this in just about every discipline that you engage in. If you grew up doing a sport, if you grew up playing an instrument, if you grew up, I don't know, what other things do people do? That's it? Those are the only two things that people do? Career, yeah. Any, anything like that. You, you have people in your life, usually, who you want to imitate. You have people who are better at doing whatever it is you're passionate about, and you look up to them sometimes just to look up to them, just for, uh, you might not know that person, and sometimes you just look up to them. Uh, and sometimes you do get to know that person, and sometimes you have the mentoring kind of relationship that we, we heard about. Um, and you have both of these ideas. Uh, part of the importance and part of the reason why this question has the word living in it um, is because I think it's important to have specific to our time uh, reaction, honestly. Sometimes we can get into a big, uh, we can get on, onto this idea, this track of, well, everything's so bad now, I'm just going to look at, the w at what people did 2,000 years ago. I'm not talking about scripture, I'm talking about, like, 
I guess I'm thinking 1900 years ago, not 2000 years ago. So 1900 years ago, I'm just going to look at what they did. I'm just going to look at what Augustine did and what he wrote and what he decided to talk about or what Origen wrote and what he wants to talk about. I'm going to look at what they did because they're, they're really smart. So I'm, I'm just going to look at that. And the problem with that is, honestly, they're writing to, number one, they're not writing scripture, so it does not have the same authority that this has to speak into our lives now, as well as they don't have the ability to react to what's going on in the world today. They just don't. They have a limited perspective in that way. I trust that this book is authoritative and was written by the Word, meaning Jesus and the Spirit, um, in a time where it can speak to us perfectly today as well. But we can look at other areas and it just doesn't work the same way. Um, and, and that's a big part of why it's so important for us to have someone who's experienced similar things to us. Um, it's the double-edged sword of surrounding yourself with people who are like you, um, who maybe grew up like you and can share in your struggles. I think about this. I have a real passion for ministers' kids, um, and I like meeting with them because I share in their story, because I grew up as a preacher's kid. Um, and I can meet with them, and I can share what I went through like 10 years before they did, um, in a close enough proximity, the world is changing at an ever rapid rate, um, in close enough proximity that it still has relevance to what's going on in their lives today, uh, and I can share these similarities, these experiences that, that I've had that they are now experiencing for the first time that they don't know what to do with. Um, it's the value side of finding someone who is similar to you that can share in your experiences and can speak specifically into your life. Um, so, you do have that double-edged sword of dealing with people who are like you. Sometimes it's a bad thing if it's the only people you're willing to be around. Sometimes it's a good thing if they can give you honest criticism and advice because they can speak from a perspective that others can't if they're only speaking from the outside. So, all that to say, this is the really cut-and-dry part of our text. This is the find someone and imitate them. Imitate Paul as he strives to be more like Christ. This is the famous text of imitate me as I imitate him. Capital H, him. Meaning God. Um, and and that, that's what, honestly, it's as simple as that uh, for, for this one verse. Uh, it's harder sometimes. Than, uh, it's, it's harder probably 99% of the time to do than it is to say. It's really easy to know this, and sometimes it's hard whenever you actually try and pursue it. Um, yeah. And at the same time, uh, I really liked... What was that? JC. I really liked what you were saying about the, uh, this idea of that it goes both ways. Um, and I would actually take that one step further to say that there's a third direction that it goes. It's both good for the person receiving it, as well as encouraging for the person who's setting the example, and then it's good for that person who received it to then turn around and do that same thing for someone else behind them. It's, the, it's honestly like the best version of the whole pay it forward in a drive through idea, where uh, someone else did this for me, therefore I'm going to do it for someone else. So I would, I would honestly challenge that if you've received like uh, mentorship or the opportunity to be influenced by a mature believer 
and you haven't taken the opportunity yet to turn around and, in this way, pay it forward, if nothing else, that's my challenge for you. That's what we're called to do. That is continuing to pursue holiness. You've received this gift, and therefore you should turn around and bestow the same gift on to other younger or simply less mature, mature believers. All right. Now we're moving on to verse 18 and 19. But before we do that, we have two questions now that we're going to cover. And they build off of each other. The first question is, who is, your, who is our enemy? And number two is, what do you do with our enemy? So I'll give you, I'll give you six minutes for this one. All right, go. Kylie. It's interesting. Half of that I was not expecting. <laughs> and the other half will actually connect perfectly to where I'm actually planning on going with it. So, on that note, let us read the text and see if maybe we get some answers for these questions. So we are looking at verses 18 and 19. I'm going to go ahead and read them for us. For I have often told you And now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. So, some of you gave this idea. Some of you jumped straight to our enemy is the devil. I don't know how I missed that one when I was thinking this through. But... In my mind, I was so focused on the text that I was not thinking there. So, based on on what we see in that text, we see a little bit more of a broad example for what our enemy is. Um, And this last idea we looked at is probably the simplest, and this one's probably the hardest for what we're going to be looking at. Um, The idea is, a lot of the times it's easy for us to stomach this idea that... uh, Enemies of our faith would be things like the devil. Things like people who actively oppose the faith. People who are threatening you because of your faith. People who outwardly hate you for your faith. Those kinds of things are easy to see them as more of our enemy. Am I right? Someone nod a little bit. You got one. These are the things that we see as being straightforward. That's my enemy. But from what Paul writes here, we see anyone who essentially 
where uh, Paul uses the phrase, gives, over, gives themselves over to their desires, they're an enemy of the cross. They have set themselves as an enemy of the cross and an enemy of the gospel, which makes the hard truth that they're then our enemy. And really the hard thing about that is it's a really inclusive list. I know a lot of people that I'm really close to that based on this example, they're an enemy of the cross and therefore they're, they are my enemy. Now I want to kind of get into just a little bit of honestly where Kylie went for that second half of Jesus tells us really specifically what we're supposed to do with our enemies. Um, and it looks very differently from what the world does with its enemies. Uh, a lot of the time the world will tell you if someone's your enemy, then you hate them. Then you're going to uh, you're, you're gonna attack them. You're going to remove them from your life because you don't need that negativity. But that's not what we're called to do as Christians. So we have a really broad list of what it looks like to be an enemy of the cross, but we also have a really clear example of what we're called to do. We see in Matthew 5 that... Jesus tells us to love our enemies, as Kylie said, that we are not to look like the world in this way either, that we are to look different, that we are to love them, to show them, to pursue holiness in order that we can show them the love of Christ that we have received so that they can, instead of rejecting the cross and choosing their desires, but they would do as Paul writes in Galatians, and they would accept the direction of the Spirit over the direction of the flesh and submit to that for their lives so that they can live a better life. They can pursue a holy life. So that, that honestly is the hardest truth we are going to have to deal with today. I'm going to fly just a little bit because we're running out of time. Now verse 20 Through the end, I'll read it for us. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, He will transform the body of our humble conditions into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul is concluding with, I know this is difficult, and stand firm. He gives this charge for endurance over and over and over again. Um, This is where we see this glorification language, this gift that we will receive in the second coming whenever Christ returns, and the motivation that we can feel for that. It's hard to pursue holiness whenever it feels like you're never going to end. It's never going to end but to know that God essentially is going to do it for you. When He comes back and He will purify us all in the most perfect state possible, better than we can ever get on our own, He will purify us to Himself so that we can live in relationship with Him in a way that hasn't existed since the beginning. In a way that only exists for the Son and for the Spirit at this time this purification that we will receive, this glorification that comes, this citizenship in heaven, that this is a theme that where we saw from Rachel back in uh, verse 1, or chapter 1, I'm sorry. Uh, if you want to look back at that to see what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven, um, this idea that maybe seems somewhat lofty, but is honestly, again, 
Paul breaks it down rather simply and gives clear example. If you want to look at that, that's verse uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. That's all I have time to say about it right now. But our citizenship is not of this earth. We are called to be different. We're called to look different in so many ways. We are called to pursue holiness and not to be complacent. We are called to love our enemies, and our enemies are vast. We have many. But this is what it looks like if you submit yourself to Christ, and this is what it looks like if you are truly a citizen of heaven. If you are mature, you will pursue holiness. If you are mature, you will love your enemy. And in doing so, you will look more and more like Christ in a way that purifies you more than anything you can do on your own. To look like Christ is, to strive to look like Christ is the goal. And it is all we can ask for. As Paul said at the fir- uh, in the first half of this chapter uh, that Morgan would have covered for us, everything else is meaningless, but Christ is enough. Let me pray for you, and then you are dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to come today and to pour over your word, to pour over this example that we are given of what it looks like to be a follower of you. Thank you for the example that Christ set for us, that he did so much more than any of us were able That in his example, Paul followed, and in Paul's example, many others have followed, and that led us somehow through some web of individuals to today. And we can look at those who are much older, and those who are just a little more mature than us, as examples for what it looks like to live and to love as you lived and as you loved your people Thank you for who you are and what this text teaches about that. Amen.